Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, the differences between those who support a constitutional voice to parliament, led by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, and those who oppose it, led by opposition leader Peter Dutton, go beyond merely which way to vote when the issue is put to a referendum later this year. The main difference is far more substantial than that and involves an aspect that one side dares not talk about. Here is a sample of the reaction from the Prime Minister's side yesterday after Mr Dutton finally announced the Coalition would oppose the proposal. Aboriginal lobbyist Noel Pearson said, quote, I couldn't sleep last night. I was troubled by dreams and the spectre of the Dutton Liberal Party's Judas betrayal of our country. Unquote. He accused Dutton of playing politics. Quote, Dutton sees his own political future tied up with getting this referendum to fail. This is more about his calculations about Liberal versus Labor rather than what's good for the country." Unquote. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese agreed. Quote, it's about whether we recognise Indigenous Australians in our constitution and about whether we listen to them. This is about whether we as a country can be optimistic, can be enlarged, can come to terms with the fullness and richness of our history, can express our pride in sharing this continent with the oldest continuous culture on earth, or whether we shrink in on ourselves. This is an issue that should be above politics." Unquote. Well, you can say that again, Albo. Labor Senator Malandiri McCarthy said, quote, This is not just about a voice of the Prime Minister, as Peter Dutton has wanted to play here. This is about the First Nations people who gathered at Uluru after much dialogue across the country. Unquote. And furthermore, the Age columnist David Crow said, quote, The voice is ultimately a vote on reconciliation and the nation's willingness to recognise and empower First Australians, unquote. Well, the opposition to Peter, well, Peter Dutton's opposition didn't end there. Some of his own Liberals joined this chorus. Here is Tasmanian Liberal Premier Jeremy Rockliffe, quote, I will campaign vigorously for a yes vote as I passionately believe it is an important opportunity for all Australians to move forward in unity and understanding." Unquote. And Liberal member for the Tasmanian seat of Bass, Bridget Archer, said, quote, I think we need to elevate this issue above divisive nasty politics and walk together into the future with unity, with purpose, for a united Australia." Unquote. Well, exactly who is playing politics here? Mr Dutton's short announcement yesterday included a point that few, if any, supporters of The Voice to Parliament dare mention. And it's this. The Voice is, according to Mr Dutton, quote, divisive and won't deliver the outcomes to people on the ground, unquote. This is where Dutton can, and I predict will, win this debate.
both for Australia and for the nation's most horrifically disadvantaged people. The accusation from his opponents that he is playing politics is hollower than the Hindenburg and destined to crash just as spectacularly. Dutton is not playing politics. Rather, he is the only one with a genuine concern for children like this one, living in the sort of conditions that would not be tolerated if the child was white. It is conspicuous, to say the least, that the proponents of The Voice, including the Prime Minister himself and various other members of the Indigenous gravy train, can overlook the plight of children like this. The fact that entire state and federal government departments decline to remove children from conditions like these for fear of sparking an ideological backlash is the very definition of institutionalised racism. New Zealand is already down this road. John Story, a researcher for the Institute of Public, Institute of, for the Institute of Public Affairs, explained on this show last month that the New Zealand government established the Waitangi Tribunal in 1975 as a, wait for it, advisory panel. But it didn't remain that way for long. So in the course of 12 years, this voice to parliament, if you like, a body set up to make recommendations to the government, went from being an advisory body to being strictly binding on the New Zealand government. And since then, it has pushed a, a, a very aggressive racial agenda. In a minute, I'll be speaking with Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative to see how well that's going. But let's first remember that the voice to parliament is an admission by Anthony Albanese and his ilk that they cannot come up with a solution for indigenous disadvantage by themselves. They need a voice to parliament to tell them what should be obvious, that indigenous kids, disadvantaged indigenous kids, need to grow up in stable, loving homes go to school and find, mean, find meaningful work as adults. The Prime Minister and his supporters deny this obvious truth because they think Western liberalism is a deeply flawed and mostly regrettable imposition on the Indigenous people of Australia. The folly of this way of thinking was very clearly explained by Oxford ethicist Professor Nigel Bigger on this show last week. Here's a sample. Often Britons were, were um, alarmed at the impact of uh, European settlement on Aboriginal peoples. Um, much of the, the negative impact was, was disease, and that disease was brought uh, to North America and to Australia uh, inadvertently. It wasn't spread deliberately. Um, and. Um, so colonial governors uh, and people back in London uh, scratched their heads as to, as to how to protect native peoples and enable them to adapt to the new world that was coming. And one idea was to, to um, protect them on reserves uh, where they could uh, uh, learn to adapt gradually. Um, but I, you're quite right. I, I'm quite frank about um, talking in terms of cultural and 
cultural superiority and inferiority, uh, not because I think that, that any culture is permanently and absolutely superior to another, but because it seems to me to be common sense that in some respects, at some times in certain places, uh, a given culture is, in terms of technology or science or medicine or even uh, uh, liberal politics, superior to another. And sometimes uh, the, the members of the inferior culture um, uh, recognize the values or the value of the advantages of the superior culture and want to um, adopt it. All it would really take to close the gap in Australia is to convince our indigenous brothers and sisters of the benefits of Western liberal culture. But to do that, we need a prime minister who believes in the inherent virtues of Australia. And sadly, right now, that's not the case. Well, to get an even more vivid glimpse into where Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is taking Australia, let's cross to Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative in Wellington. Oliver, welcome. Great to be with you. Now, firstly, on the issue of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which Australia will vote on this year, how would you describe the way New Zealand is co-governed these days and would you recommend it? Well, New Zealand is not currently co-governed, but there are many ways in which the current government is leading New Zealand towards that. And it is not just a governance aspect. It's actually an aspect that permeates every aspect of policy, they say. So you can go through infrastructure management, you can have a look at the education system, you can look at healthcare, and you will see racial elements now permeating all of these policy areas. So it's not just governance. That's a bit misleading. It is actually... Everything that the government does now has to have a race component added to it. So in that sense, it's probably a little bit different from how you're planning to go about things in Australia, but you can see maybe a glimpse of your future here. Can you elaborate on how, those, how decisions are made with that racial element involved? Yes, for example, if you look at health, we had a health reform last year. The previously regionally uh, organized healthcare system was nationalized, so there is now one health agency for all of New Zealand, but there is a parallel health structure just for those Maori New Zealanders. And when we talk about education, well, um, the Maori aspect now permeates everything in education. So you look at our curriculum, you look at um, the way in which we are trying to teach different subjects, everything now has a Maori element to it. Can and I, I'll get to this the, actually uh, leads to some... Sorry, I'll get to the curriculum in a minute because that's a very serious topic and I want to isolate that in a minute or two. But the, but when you say, you know, decisions are made with uh, sort of racial um, uh, considerations, does that make government decisions uh, considerably more expensive and cumbersome? Yes, because it adds another layer of bureaucracy and another layer of decision-making to everything. So you have now requirements that Maori voices have to be represented in certain numbers in various aspects of policy-making. And you certainly have requirements that aspects of Maori philosophy and the Maori worldview have to be incorporated in decision-making. One example there is we currently discuss a replacement of our Resource Management Act. That's the planning law for the country. It's an act that uh, governs all planning, that runs um, environmental policy, 
And in the future act that is currently before parliament, this will include more elements of Maori. So um, Maori aspects of um, basically environmental planning, the Maori worldview have to be incorporated into decision making. And that will complicate things because we're talking about aspects and concepts that are not legal concepts so far. So the courts will take a long time even to try to define what these mean and, and how they should be incorporated then in decision making. It sounds awfully complicated and it sounds terribly like where Australia is heading with this uh, voice to parliament. Now, coincidentally, on the same day that the debate about the voice to parliament heated up in Australia, former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was delivering her valedictory speech to the New Zealand parliament. One of the main points she made was, and again, this is not unrelated to what's, ha what's being debated in Australia, quote, I feel proud of the evolution of how we see ourselves as a nation through the teaching of New Zealand history in schools, unquote. Oliver, what sort of history did they start teaching under Ardern and did it make New Zealand a more unified nation? Well, I don't think you can claim that New Zealand is now a more unified nation in any way. Actually, the racial division in New Zealand these days is stronger than it's ever been. And the history curriculum that you mentioned and that the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister mentioned in Parliament yesterday is a big part of that. So we don't have too much that is compulsory in New Zealand uh, education, but the government introduced a new history curriculum just for New Zealand history, by the way. You can go through your entire school career and wouldn't touch on world history at all. But for New Zealand history, now we have made this compulsory. And the story there is actually that it's presented as a history of conquest, basically, and of co cultural conflict between Maori and Pākehā, so white European New Zealanders. So it's a story actually of conflict, of racial divide, and this is now being instilled in children right from the start. So I don't think this will unite the country. It will actually emphasize the divisions in New Zealand society to a degree that we haven't seen before. Well, it's also a rewriting of history. That's very contrary to what we know, um, in, we in Australia know, as far as the Treaty of Waitangi goes. Well, there are many interpretations of the Treaty of Waitangi, and that is a constant debate in New Zealand politics. The difference here is now that there is now one official version and one that is being taught in New Zealand schools. And every other interpretation is now basically brushed aside. That is the consequence of that history curriculum. Well, speaking of interpretations, I have to, I, I just have to digress for a second. The Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, couldn't even define what a woman is recently. What was the response among Kiwis to that, that uh, stumbling answer that he is now world famous for? Well, um, the, the response of ordinary Kiwis was probably amusement um, because typically Hipkins is a very good media performer. I mean, he's a seasoned politician. He knows how to answer questions and he knows how not to answer questions he doesn't want to answer. So that question completely threw him off because he had nothing pre-prepared, which in itself is a bit surprising because this is one of those questions now internationally being debated. I mean, this is the question basically that cost Nicola Sturgeon her job in Scotland. And just the day before he was asked the question, it was Keir Starmer in Britain being asked about that. And he said, well, actually, 99.9% .9 of women don't have penises. So in any way, 
Chris Hipkins should have been prepared for something along those lines. And yet when he was asked, what is a woman? He had nothing to say. He stumbled around for about a minute. And that video clip has gone viral now. Piers Morgan actually tweeted the other day that has now been watched 5.3 million times on Twitter, which incidentally is a little bit more than the entire New Zealand population. So um, quite an interesting thing for us. Um, not the kind of video you would like as a New Zealand to go viral worldwide but certainly a source of um, consternation and perhaps even a bit of entertainment here. Well, it's also an insight into how politics works these days. I mean, Hipkins was saying, you know, you can't ask me a question unless I know it in advance and have prepared an answer. He's not alone there as that far as politicians That was the funny go. thing, actually. That was the revealing thing that Hipkins said. So basically for everything, you first need to consult with your focus groups. You want to check with your pollsters. And then once you're really, really sure that the answer is acceptable, then you can say it. So actually, it showed us a side of Hipkins that the public probably hadn't seen before. This is a very calculating, very media savvy um, prime minister and politician. And if he isn't prepared for a question, then he won't have an answer. <laughs> Well, let's just get back to education now, because um, uh, education was revolutionised quite dramatically under Ardern. Uh, the maths curriculum was redesigned so that students would, quote, develop critical awareness about wider social, environmental, political, ideological and economic issues, unquote. Now, you, you may be familiar with this policy, but I mean, it just, I find it startling that we're talking about maths here. And also uh, under the literary, literacy uh, curriculum, it became the study, rather than just reading and writing, it became the study of the relationship between texts and power. Now, Oliver, Indeed. Australia is embarking on similar educational follies, but what effect is this ideological curriculum having on Kiwi kids and what do you think will be the long-term consequences of it? Well, first of all, just a minor correction. This is not even the curriculum. This is the common practice model. That's what they call it. So this is a document that the New Zealand government, the Ministry for Education, passes on to every single teacher in the country just to explain their expectations on how they should teach subjects. So we don't really have much of a curriculum in New Zealand these days. It is actually quite open and quite loose. Uh, and one of the criticism actually of the New Zealand education system is that we don't typically define what needs to be taught. But here we've got a document actually teaching teachers what they should actually pass on to students. And here you have a document that makes it clear that this government is not serious about education. It is not serious about education in the conventional sense of teaching students how to read and write and do maths. It is all about ideology. It is critical race theory basically now applied to mathematics. So this document talks about ethnomathematics. Uh, if you ask me, this is ridiculous because it doesn't matter on, uh, it doesn't depend on the color of your skin, what two plus two equals. And it goes on like this as mathematics for social justice. I mean, whatever that should be. And everything is now seen through this ideological sense. So we have a government that doesn't actually instill the basic skills and the basic knowledge into our students. But what it does do is it instills a lot of ideology from this critical race theory background. And that is dangerous because New Zealand's education results have been falling for decades. And actually, we've got a real problem in this country with illiteracy and innumeracy. Uh, according to some statistics, about 40% of New Zealand school leavers cannot read, write or calculate properly. 
And therefore, I think this focus on ideology takes us completely in the wrong direction. Is there much awareness of how destructive that could be in the long term for New Zealand? Well, let's put it this way. There is growing awareness, but we've got a long way to go. I think most New Zealand parents would sense that there is something wrong with their schools. But the problem is actually most parents are not education experts. So they might be wondering, is it just our children? Is it just the class? Is it the teacher? Is it the school? Or is there something fundamentally wrong with the system? And unless you're really up to date on education debates, you wouldn't know. So what we are trying to do here at the New Zealand Initiative is actually to try to raise awareness that this is not an individual problem with your teacher or your class or your school. This is a general problem for the New Zealand education system that has been led astray by a bunch of ideologues, mainly in our education ministry. It's frightening to imagine how that's going to play out in the future, you know, with a, with a population that struggles to read and write and even understand mathematics. And getting back to the valedictory speech, the most important message Jacinda Ardern made in that speech yesterday was, quote, climate change is a crisis. <laughs> Hold the front page, Oliver. Anyway, she, uh, she pleaded for those remaining in parliament to take the politics out of this issue after she's gone. Oliver, did the New Zealand climate change at all during the five and a half years Ardern was prime minister? And if not, where's the crisis? Well, it was ironic to hear Jacinda Ardern talk about uh, climate change and taking the politics out of climate change because she has politicized it more than any other prime minister before her. I mean, she, for example, ended oil and gas exploration, offshore oil and gas exploration, just because she needed some good headlines before jetting off to a summit in Europe. So she has clearly politicized climate change. She has actually introduced policy initiatives that didn't make any sense at all because they didn't actually cut carbon emissions, but she wanted to have some good headlines. So actually from, from her, that admonition of the rest of parliament, can you please take the politics out of it, had something hypocritical because uh, she certainly played along those lines. And when you ask about the climate and whether it changed, well, the thing is actually New Zealand has an emissions trading scheme. And under that emissions trading scheme, the country will always find the most effective way of cutting carbon emissions. That emissions trading scheme actually precedes um, the administration of Jacinda Ardern, and it works particularly well in New Zealand. So actually, there was very little for her government to do on climate change. All we got from her actually was posturing. Well, it sounds like the politics will be taken out of climate because she's leaving. <laughs> now, there are many reasons to remember Ardern's catastrophic reign, in my opinion, but I think the one moment that sums her up is this one. But do not panic, prepare. And, and when you see those messages, remember that unless you hear it from us, um, it is not the truth. Unless you hear it from us, it's not the truth. Oliver, were you frightened when you heard that? And do you think it sums up Ardern's uh, prime ministership? Well, actually, no, I was not frightened when I heard that because I didn't take it literally. I think um, she gave a lot of interviews at the time. She did a lot of stand-ups and uh, she said a lot of things and you didn't always have to take them completely literally. So no, it didn't frighten me. I'm not sure whether that sums her up. The one thing that I thought actually summed her up best was um, the beginning of her valedictory speech in Parliament yesterday, because you listen to that and she talked about her great ambitions when she entered Parliament. She talked about her allegedly great achievements now that she leaves Parliament. And there was this massive 
discrepancy between all of these nice words and the actual delivery on the ground because she was very good at ambitions. She was very good at making statements. She was not so good on delivery. And for me, that actually is the defining feature, this massive schism between ambitions and delivery. I've hardly ever seen a politician or heard a politician speaking in such wonderful, glowing terms as Ardern, basically solving every problem under the sun, whether it's child poverty or climate change or whatever else it might be. But when you actually go through the figures and you check what her government actually delivered, it was practically zero. I mean, one example, housing policy, that was her platform she ran on in 2017 when she became prime minister. She said it was scandalous how the housing market was completely out of control and she wanted to restore housing affordability. She promised a new home building program that would deliver 100,000 homes for New Zealand. Well, actually, house prices spiraled even more under her leadership and that house building program, Kiwi Build, is currently at about 1,300 units after five and a half years. So a massive contrast between lofty ambitions, fantastic rhetoric and practically zero delivery. I thought the other defining feature of that speech yesterday was that she talked about herself so much. I think the world is less one, one political, there's one few, one fewer political narcissists in the world right now. And uh, we should be grateful and grateful to you too, Oliver Hartwich, for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative Think Tank and one of the few voices across the ditch calling out the woke nonsense coming from the Labor government over there these days. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. And that's all from me for this week too. Have a wonderful Easter with your family and friends. And while you've got the time off, why don't you jump over to adh.tv or our app or wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on some of the shows that you might have missed. There is a wealth of content that we are building up at ADH and we have a huge stable, growing stable of stars that you can listen to. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next Tuesday at seven o'clock. Good night.